You're listening to the Fantasy Sports Radio Network. Welcome, everybody. You have arrived at FanRag Fantasy Baseball. Happy President's Day to you all. Looking forward to spending the next hour with you talking about the latest news. We're going to dig into the FanRag Outfielder Rankings, which are up live on FanRag right now, and a few other odds and ends. And today, joining me from FanRag, one of our fantastic fantasy analysts, Jim Finch. Jim, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Alan. Thanks for telling me it's President's Day. I almost forgot, and I was wondering where the hell the mail was. <laughs> well, I'm glad uh, I, I removed that distraction for the next hour. <laughs> no problem. I actually, to be honest, just remember myself about one minute before uh, before coming on here. So uh, did us both well, a favor, Either way, it's appreciated. <laughs> well, very welcome, Jim. So uh, we've got quite a few things to talk about here in terms of fantasy impact. I think the biggest uh, news item of the past several hours has been the report from Jim Bowden that the uh, Nationals closer will be a competition. So apparently they're not going to bring in uh, an outside option, but they're also not just going to hand the job, I think, to the presumed closer. Many of us were uh, thinking it would be Sean Kelly. He will have to compete with Blake Trainin and Coda Glover. And uh, do you have any opinions, uh, preferences, or uh, thoughts about the situation, Jim? Uh, Glover, based on what he did last year, I think he'd have to have a really impressive spring, so it would probably come down to Kelly or uh, Kelly or Blake, and that could either go one of two ways. I mean, Kelly's never been a closer, but he does have the more, the more established line as far as numbers go, so he could be looked at as the trusted closer, but you're not going to get to close out a game if you can't get there and they may want to put the more experienced guy in the closer role so at least they can get to the ninth inning in which case Sean Kelly would be a perfect setup guy at least he would give him one more inning and a chance to win so it could go either way I believe it's going to be Kelly but it's a it's a coin flip between the two of them I'd say yeah I in terms of a prediction i've really got no clue here because i think that they they have every reason in the world already to give the job to kelly so the fact that they're not doing it makes me a little bit skeptical that he'll get it plus the fact that there have been quotes that have come out of the organization that they're concerned about him health wise uh using him on consecutive uh nights or i don't know if it's you know technically consecutive nights but you know using him too many days in a short span so I think that may be another strike against Kelly as well. And then you look at the other two, and I think Blake Training could be a very effective closer, but certainly not really the stereotypical closer who gets a ton of strikeouts. He's more of a ground ball pitcher. And then Coda Glover, who did have great numbers in the minor leagues, but you know, like you said, Jim, not really an overwhelming major league debut. I think it could be a situation where maybe they give it to Kelly, but also maybe they give it to Training and then Glover with a little more experience, takes over at some point during the year. So that's a very long-winded way of saying, I've got no clue. But if I had to root for anybody, it would definitely be Sean Kelly. We know, we know he can do the job. So that's uh, that's my two cents there. But uh, a situation worth watching. And let, let me put this question a different way. Is there anybody out of the three, if it turns out, let's say, uh, I don't know, three, four weeks from now, we know that that pitcher is going to be the Nationals' closer. 
Uh, is there anyone in particular that you would not pursue because you thought they were too risky? Out of the three, Glover, just based on what he's shown at the major league so far. I mean, you really have to, he, he really didn't display any kind of uh, control when he was in the majors, so I would make him prove it before I touched him. The other two, they are, they're the, um, both of them showed good numbers last year, Kelly pretty much for his entire career, so I would probably take a shot on one of those two, but Glover I wouldn't touch at all. All right, well, that's pretty definitive, so good to know in case – you know, a few weeks from now, Glover wins the job. We're in a draft together, um, and I don't have to worry about you, uh, you, you uh, sniping him from me. But I think that's no, a you pretty, definitely don't have to worry about that. That's a pretty low probability scenario, so <laughs> I'm just not going to worry about it. Let's uh, move on to a different uh, position competition. Uh, this, according to MLB.com, that the shortstop job for the Diamondbacks is a wide open competition between Chris Owings, Nick Ahmed, and Ketel Marte. Now, this is something that came up in my conversation with John Heyman on the show last week that uh, I had just really based on a hunch and nothing much more than that, thought that Nick Ahmed might be the front runner here. Um, and certainly that's not good news from a fantasy perspective, but just in terms of the total package of what he brings the Diamondbacks with the, the superb defense. And John said, well, don't sleep on Marte because they clearly like him a lot to have brought him in in that Gene Segura trade along with Taiwan Walker. And that now, it turns out, is what the situation is, that Marte has a clear shot at the job with the Owings and Ahmed uh, in competition. Uh, same question to you, uh, Jim, on this one. Anybody that you think will win it and anybody you hope will win it? Um, I think and hope are basically the same. I think they brought in Marte for a reason, just like John was saying the other day when you talked to him. They brought him in for a reason. They traded for him for a reason. They could have gotten anybody back in a trade for Segura. They brought him in there. If they wanted Owings to have the job, they wouldn't have been shifting him around all these years and spot playing him here and there. He would have had a set position and a set job. So the fact that they're bringing somebody else in, already says what they speak, you know, already tells you what they think of him. Ahmed, I didn't even consider him a possibility until you guys brought him up on the show. So maybe he's a dark horse, but I think it's just between Owings and uh, Marte, but Marte should come away with the job this spring. Yeah, what I could see is Ahmed maybe winning it outright and then Marte coming in uh, in midseason. But, uh, yeah, it's really hard to tell uh, at this point. I do agree with the point you made that Chris Owings is the one of the three who definitely, in terms of versatility and just in terms of the way he's been used in the past, profiles best as a utility player. So I would give him the lowest probability to win the job, which in a way is unfortunate because I think maybe as of right now with a full-time job, Owings might be the best fantasy producer because he can steal bases just as Marte can. And I think that Owings has a little bit more pop and probably at least as good as Marte as a batting average contributor. But Well, in that yeah, case, he like... could actually turn into a Wilmer Flores type player for the, for the Diamondbacks where he can fill in where needed, in which case his value would still be there. Yeah, excellent point as well. Excellent point. So particularly in roto leagues uh, and maybe some deeper ones that that's something that does keep owings on the map i think so let's well, it's a situation to watch for sure uh eric hosmer making the news he and the royals have been in some extension talks 
And I think that this is notable more so even than just for Hosmer and Royals having those and the Royals having those discussions is the fact that there's the absence of discussions with Lorenzo Kane and Mike Moustakis, all three set to be free agents at the end of the season. Uh, and this is, by the way, by way of uh, Ken Rosenthal from Fox Sports. So do you see any impact here? And I'm going to broaden this question out, not just for Hosmer, Kane, and Moustakis themselves, but for the potential successors to them, because I would think whoever they don't sign then becomes a, a pretty high-profile trade target for uh, midseason. If I'm the Royals, out of the th- out of three of them between Moustakis, Kane, and Hosmer, I would probably be pursuing Hosmer just for the fact that the first base market is rather thin as far as young, long-term talent goes. I mean, you can basically get a one-year guy every once in a while, like Na- Napoli this year with Texas, but overall you're not going to find the kind of talent that you need for long-term. So I think he should be the one person that they should concentrate on signing. Moustakis, he would probably have to earn his way, earn his contract. I mean, 2015, yeah, he had a great year, but the numbers, underlying metrics and everything, they weren't much different than what he put the numbers that he put up in 2014. So we don't really know if he's a fluke or not. So... He, I would probably wait until midseason if they can. Any kind of contracts extensions for him. Kane, he would be the one I would let go. I'm not sure what kind of presence he has as far as the clubhouse or leadership role as far as that goes. But as an overall hitter, he's he's like a Milky Cabrera, I'd say. I mean, he's not a great hitter. He's a good hitter. He's a solid hitter. But he's this is strictly fantasy-wise, but he's not anything that special. He's a decent number three outfielder. He may be more important to them in real life than he is for us for fantasy, which I I don't know anything about that, but that's basically the way I would order them. I mean, if he has more, if he has a, more of a clubhouse presence, maybe they might want to prioritize him over Hosmer, but Hosmer, from a fantasy standpoint, would be my... Uh, He's the one I'd target first to resign. Yeah, well, I, I agree with that. And at least we do know that for now that the Royals agree with you in terms of making Cosmer the first priority. I do see a couple of other fantasy impacts out of out of the story. And one is that, and this is actually something that I wrote up, uh, gives me a chance to plug it, are outfield rankings that uh, were unveiled on FanRag earlier today. And uh, each of us did write-ups. There's a, We rank 1 through 75, and so we split them up three ways. One of the outfielders I wrote about was Lorenzo Cain. And I wrote, if you are in an AL-only league, this may give you, give you some hesitation to actually take him in that format. I think I would actually downgrade him and Moustakis just a little bit because of the fear of getting stuck with the midseason with, with nothing to show for it. And also in terms of the potential um, collateral effects of uh, perhaps Moustakis or Kane getting traded, Moustakis in particular, Hunter Dozier, I think he looked to be pretty close to Major League Ready last year. Big breakout in AA and AAA. I sort of liken it to what Mitch Haniger did with the Diamondbacks organization, and he got a, a chance to uh, come up late in the season and now will, it appears, be a starting outfielder for the Mariners. Uh, he had a big kind of out-of-nowhere power breakout, and Dozier had the same. I could see him stepping in for Moustakis and having some maybe not standard mixed league impact, but I'd say deeper mixed league and certainly AL impact. So any 
Any hesitancy on drafting Mustakas and Kane in those formats and any interest in Hunter Dozier? In only leagues, yeah, I'd probably have more hesitation on uh with well, considering Dozer's there, I'd probably hesitate on Mustakas just for the fact that he could be traded, you don't know where he's gonna wind up and Dozier he could step in for the third base job, so I would worry about him. Kane, I don't see them trading him. I think he's more, like I said, I think he's more important to the team than he is for us for fantasy, so they would probably ride him out. So probably avoid Dozier. I like him, but I'm always hesitant of rookies, especially ones that have those big years that didn't really show that much years prior. So I like him. He could have that lightning in a bottle effect mid-season. I don't know. Well, it sounds like a pretty lukewarm endorsement, but uh, you know we're talking about deeper leagues too. So you get to those late rounds, and sometimes your choice is really between somebody who may have a, a bench or a utility role, and just taking a chance on somebody like a Dozier who may give you nothing, uh, but could be a surprising breakout. So that that is uh, another situation that bears watching for us. Now we've got a few more news items to cover. We've got a head to break, but we will have some more Royals talk in addition to those news items when we come back. Welcome back, everybody, to FanRag Fantasy Baseball. I'm joined today by FanRag Sports Analyst, Baseball Analyst, I should say, uh, Jim Finch. And uh, speaking of fantasy sports on FanRag Sports, uh, we do have, I've already mentioned, uh, just unveiled today, the outfield rankings 1 through 75. It's the first installment of our outfielder fantasy guide for 2017. If you just go to FanRagSports.com, and mouse over uh, the drop-down for fantasy. It'll be right there. And just uh, to the right of that is the shortstop draft plan for 2017 from Jim Finch. So uh, also be sure to check that out as well. Uh, now, Jim, in the first segment, uh, we covered some news items. We talked about uh, Eric Hosmer and the Royals having some extension talks. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about the rest of the Royals roster but just a few other news items. And this first piece, maybe not exactly uh, huge news, but it's one of the more interesting spring training pieces that I've read so far this year from uh, Thomas Boswell of the Washington Post and did a, a piece on Ryan Zimmerman, who has reworked his swing. And it's, it's an interesting account because Boswell says in all the years he's covered the Nationals, he finds Zimmerman to be one of the more stubborn players that he's dealt with. And so it's really almost a, a desperation move that Zimmerman is now looking to rework his swing and try to get more lift on the ball and also be a more aggressive hitter. So thought that was a pretty interesting take. Does this give you any more interest in Zimmerman? And uh, I guess I should maybe preface that by asking, how much interest do you have in Ryan Zimmerman in the first place? He's one of those guys that you kind of grew up with, and he was always the big name. But over declining over the years, declining over the years, I've sort of lost interest in him. I mean, yeah, I found the article interesting. I mean, I didn't know that about his exit velocity. How he had what was it like the one of the top highest uh, exit velocities in the league last year? And while he is reworking his swing, he's got declining contact numbers, increased strikeouts. He says walks are going down. 
So you can rework your swing, but if you're not making contact, I don't know how much that's going to work. I mean, Daniel Murphy reworked his swing, and he was already a good hitter. So he's got <laughs> the advantage there. Zimmerman's not a good hitter right now. Yeah, and Murphy's very relevant to the story because Murphy and hitting coach Rick Shue, those are the people that Zimmerman's working with on the swing. So maybe he can uh, pick up some of the, the things that Mur- uh, made Mur- that's made Murphy a good hitter over the years. Uh, but you did mention that the contact rates in decline for Zimmerman, and he's aware of that. And another interesting angle to this piece is how he and Murphy, and Murphy in particular, they're really fans of the StatCast data of analytics more broadly, uh, which was kind of, it's always an interesting thing to me to see how players use these data. And uh, Murphy apparently is very, very big on it. And so I guess he's trying to, make Ryan Zimmerman a believer in it as well. And uh, Zimmerman talked about how, yeah, he's got the, the hard contact, but uh, he, he's not uh, elevating the ball enough, so he's not really making the most of it. And that's been something I've noticed with Zimmerman over the last few years is the good hard contact rates that don't always translate into uh, good results. So maybe that'll help him get more extra base hits and also the more aggressive approach may actually enable him to cut back on those strikeouts. That's Zimmerman's, uh, that's his intention anyways. And it'll be interesting to see how it works out. I'm always kind of skeptical of these reports, though, not so much that these players are intending to make these changes, but that they actually are effective in impacting the numbers. These are difficult things to do. So um, we shall see. Sort of like reading an article about the guy's in the best shape of his life. Yeah, okay, what does that mean? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And you're really like, well, maybe th- this time, you know, this instance, this is where it's really going to make a difference. And occasionally I'll get, I'll get fooled by it, but it's one thing to do the work, and that's another thing for it to pay off. And, and I have yet to crack the code in terms of what makes the difference for those players that are able to take that work and, and really translate it into a, a tangible difference on the field. So that's something to watch with Ryan Zimmerman. And plus, needs to stay healthy, too, obviously. That's a key to his value. There are a few minor moves, and actually turned out to be more minor than I thought initially. The uh, Diamondbacks signed Jorge De La Rosa to a minor league deal, which, uh, if absolutely nothing else, will serve to confuse me all season long because I'll probably think that it's Ruby De La Rosa, who is a former Diamondback, but it's... uh, it's uh, the lefty, Jorge De La Rosa. And initially, I thought this was sort of interesting, but it turns out that De La Rosa is a, uh, competing for a bullpen job. So probably close to zero fantasy relevance there. Similarly, Jonathan Neese signing with the Yankees on a minor league deal. The initial report I saw was that he could go either in the rotation or the bullpen. The more recent report states that it's solely uh, a bullpen job that he's competing for. So maybe down the line, if there's depth issues with both teams, then there could be a chance to start. But at least for now, it looks like really not much fantasy relevance. And then the Orioles made a trade to get Vidal Nuno from the Dodgers. And he could go in that swingman role. And I think this makes some sense. I was going to say a lot of sense. I think it makes some sense for the Orioles because they do need the pitching depth. But I have to think that Camden Yards and the AL East in general is not going to be a great home for Nuno, who struggled to keep the ball in the park pitching in Seattle last year. So we shall see what happens there. 
But uh, let's go back to the Royals. We talked about Hosmer's discussions on a possible contract extension, Mike Moustakis and Lorenzo Cain not having those discussions yet. Uh, also, I should mention that Eric Hosmer says if he doesn't have a deal by the end of spring training, he is definitely going on the free agent market. So that also makes that story worth watching. But how about the rest of the Royals uh, Royals roster? Uh, lots of people that aren't slated to be free agents, so we don't necessarily have to worry about them being traded to the same degree. But still some fantasy questions there. For example, Salvador Perez, kind of an interesting performance trajectory where he's really come through with power over the last couple of years. But he's definitely paid a price in terms of strikeouts and in terms of batting average. Does that make you like Perez more or less? Uh, I th- it's not that I don't like him. I don't like where he's being drafted. I mean, everyone's looking at him and they're drafting the name Salvador Perez, thinking a few years back like he's going to bounce back to the 270, 280 kind of average. He's not that guy. I mean, he's maybe a 250-ish hitter, 255, 260. You're looking at best case, but... Counting stat-wise, you're looking at 20 home runs, 50-plus runs, maybe 70 RBIs. That's good for a catcher, but it's really not that much different than Brian McCann or even Russell Martin being taken like 40 picks later. So if you're drafting Russell Martin, you're basically drafting a name at this this point and not production. Yeah, you took the words right out of my mouth <laughs> because the trajectory that Perez is on, it really has made him very similar to McCann or maybe Evan Gaddis. I think Gaddis has more power, but also a much murkier path to playing time. Of course, everybody has a murkier path to playing time than Salvador Perez. But I do worry about him being sort of one-dimensional and being like a lot of uh, hitters that are – a lot of catchers that are being taken much later. So I'm totally on board with you there, Jim. How about Jorge Soler? Um, also, kind of a similar profile in his young major league career as somebody who strikes out a lot, pulls the ball a lot, fly ball prone. We're seeing, we've seen some power uh, with Soler during his time with the Cubs. But how do you see that working for him with uh, Kansas City? I mean, a change of address is always good for a player, but like you said, he strikes out way too much. I think he's uh, had like a 25% strikeout rate. The line drive rate dropped last year. You had the increased fly balls and good ISO. You had the increased walks, but contact rate, that was down at like 68%. That's right there with like guys like Upton, Chris Carter, Brandon Moss, Sano, all three Davises. So... <laughs> He has the power potential with the ISO, but if he's not hitting the ball, that there's a problem. So it all comes down to if they can maybe change his swing a little bit and get him to get that average up. But overall, I'm not too optimistic about him. Now, I'm going to take a little bit of a left turn here because you brought up the, the line drive rate, which, which fell pretty dramatically last year. And that's always something that, to me, is it's kind of like trying to read tea leaves, that... I, if I see somebody with a low line drive rate, I actually tend to view that as a good thing, especially if it's fallen from a higher level. Because line drive rate, in terms of all those batted ball measurements, is the one that tends to vary the most from year to year. So do you give any particular type of interpretation when you see those kinds of fluctuations in line drive rate? Or, I mean, do you take the opposite view that, well, it's down, so that's a negative trend? Or do you just kind of ignore it altogether? It's player to player, and it all depends on some of their other numbers. I mean, if he was hitting the ball a little bit better, I would 
take the uh, drop in line drives with a grain of salt, but with a contact rate that low, I I put a little bit more uh, put a little bit more weight onto that. So yeah, it could bounce back a little, but like I said, with the bad contact, it really doesn't matter much. Okay, well, uh, I think I'm probably a little bit uh, more bullish on, on Soler just because he's a young player. He does have the change of scenery. The ballpark I don't think suits him particularly well, but I think he could grow into being a better hitter this year now that I think he'll have a lot more playing time, assuming he stays healthy. But uh, definitely somebody to, to look at in the later rounds. Now, moving on to the pitching side of the ledger, of course, Danny Duffy being drafted fairly highly stock way up this year after a very good 2016 season. Anybody else in the Royals rotation that you would consider at some point in a 12-team mixed league draft? Uh, maybe Kennedy near the end. I mean, he has home run problems, but he still gets strikeouts, and if the team's hitting, you could get some wins out of him. And deeper leagues, I might look at Jason Vargas. I mean, he's been out for two years, so he's off a lot of people's radars. He doesn't get a lot of strikeouts, but he was always good for 200 innings and an ERA and a mid to high threes. So he could be a decent one for mixed leagues. Well, yeah, you mentioned the strikeouts with Vargas, and that provides you with a nice segue to uh, a segment that we're going to have a little bit later on where we talk about some pitchers that haven't missed a lot of bats in recent years. And I think that sometimes those pitchers make great values because as, as fantasy owners, we tend to be very, very focused on strikeouts. And so I like the fact that, you know, you target somebody like Vargas who succeeds in other ways uh, when he's been healthy. But uh, that's going to be a little bit later on. We're going to head into another break right now. But when we come back, we're going to dig into our outfield rankings a little bit. And Jim, I think you and I, we have some interesting discrepancies. We'll explore those right when we come back. Welcome back to FanRag Fantasy Baseball. Happy Presence Day, everybody. I'm joined today by FanRag's own Jim Finch. And on FanRag, I've mentioned a few times already, uh, we have unveiled our outfield rankings, 1 through 75. Little paragraph blurbs on each one in case you're wondering why they're ranked uh, the way that they are ranked. Now, the one thing you won't find there are our individual rankings. These are compiled rankings uh, between Jim and Greg Jewett and myself. And uh, so we're going to take a few of those rankings and break them down where uh, at least uh, I can't speak for Greg on this show, but where Jim and I have some substantial differences and try to hash those out a little bit. So uh, you ready, Jim? Yep, let's go. All right, let's do, let's start. We'll start near the top and work down. Nelson Cruz, we've got a five-spot difference. I've got him number five. And, of course, one, two, three, four, there's um, a great deal of consensus there. Um, in fact, almost the same four players all around. The, the consensus top four, Mike Trout, Mookie Betts, Chris Bryant, Bryce Harper. Uh, Jim, you've got Charlie Blackman up there. We're going to talk about him shortly. But then right uh, just a little further down, we've got Nelson Cruz at number seven. But I've got him fifth. You've got him 10th. Um, does this have to do with Cruz's age or something else altogether? It's a little bit to do with age. I mean, he's, I, he's one of those, he's, it's, it's sort of a mixed bag. I mean, I always looked at David Ortiz for years and said, you know, the numbers are going to decline as he goes up there, and he just didn't. 
the same thing could happen with Cruz, but in the same respect, he does sort of remind me of Ortiz. So I could be wrong, but I don't know. He's number. He puts up solid numbers. I mean, for the past three years, you get his worst numbers for 87 runs, 40 home runs, 93 RBIs, and a 271 batting average. I mean, great numbers, but the potential for a decline is always in the back of my mind once a player hits a certain age. So it's not that I don't like him or wouldn't draft him. I just have hesitancy about the age. Right. And just to put this in some context, um, so some of the outfielders that you've got ahead of them, we mentioned Charlie Blackman, uh, also Starling Marte, George Springer, J.D. Martinez, who's somebody I like a lot. Uh, I've actually got Martinez ranked a little bit higher than even you do. Uh, so those are some players that you'd rather have uh, or rather draft than Nelson Cruz. So if, if I'm interpreting what you're saying, and, and you know, do correct me if I'm misinterpreting, it's really it's not so much your average central expectation of Cruz's performance. It's that you're worried about the floor for him being lower than those other players. Exactly. Is that accurate? Okay. Yeah, and I think if this were maybe a different position, I would be downgrading Cruz more. But it's just those those players that I mentioned, like Springer as an example. Uh, I feel like there's so much uncertainty there, even though he's so much younger than Cruz. You know, there's been some inconsistency. There's been health issues. It's just everybody really below the top three is flawed in some substantial way in terms of either health, consistency, age, what have you. So I'm willing to give Cruz a little bit more of a, of a break here. Uh, and he has been highly consistent, Jim, as, as you did mention. Now let's talk about Charlie Blackman, who's one of those players that I would put in that flawed category. You've got him third overall. I think we're pretty extreme here. You've got him third. I've got him 15th, which is probably lower than, than very many analysts uh, have him. Uh, so I'll lay Greg out. Greg has what, him nine, so he's right in the middle. <laughs> yeah. So go go with Greg, everybody. But uh, <laughs> now I've got my reasons for uh, downgrading Blackman, and he had he did have some legitimate power growth last year. Given where he's at on the age curve, really in the peak of his career, I'm a little bit distrustful of the one year what I fear could be a blip for Blackman power wise. And the thing is, in terms of the results, uh, they actually improve more on the road than at Coors Field. So that's something that also just makes me a little bit concerned because you'd think, okay, if he's hitting with greater exit velocity, he's barreling the ball more often, you would think that would definitely show up at Coors Field. So it almost looks like a fluky thing to me that most of the gains were in in the road splits for Blackman. Also, the, the steals significantly down last year. There was a report recently that said that he's healthier this year, particularly uh, his legs are healthier. He'll run more. And that's another one of these spring training stories I want to believe, but my Better judgment tells me, believe it when I see it. So those are my reasons for having a lot of skepticism about drafting Blackman based on his 20, uh, 2016 performance. What do you like about Charlie Blackman? Oh, besides for the uh, overall contact skills and low wa- or high walks, low sh- or decent walks, high strikeouts, or other way around, decent <laughs> walks and low strikeouts. I mean, yeah, he, there was some probably some luck involved last year. I mean, he had some bapit love for the average, so I don't see him hitting the 324 again. The ISO had a small bump in there, the fly ball average, hard hit rate. Both of those went up a little, not enough to justify that the power that he hit. So I do think there will be some regression there. But 
like you said, there are reports coming out. It's healthy now. He's going to run more. And that's something I believe because that's basically what got him to the show. It wasn't his power. It was his speed. So if the speed can bounce back, he can turn into 2020 season. You're looking at someone that hasn't hit lower than 287 over the past four years. So you got 2020, 287, and with that surrounding cast, the counting stats for runs and RBIs, there you can't even put a number on those. I mean, it could be anywhere from 80 to over 100 for each one of those. So 2020 player with those kind of numbers, that's something I would value more than basically everyone below, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Well, and the one thing that you mentioned, too, was the high BABIP. And I, I think he's due for some regression, but given the skills that you talked about uh, with Blackman and, and a pretty good line drive hitter and, and has been for a long time, that's going to play really well at Coors Field. So some regression, yes, but instead of a 350 BABIP hitter, I don't see him being much worse than 325, 330. So the batting average, yeah, maybe he doesn't uh, top 300 overall batting average this year. That's not really the thing that concerns me. It's pretty much all of the other categories uh, for Blackman. But uh, it, he's a real wild card. And so I think it's kind of interesting that this is, uh, in terms of the top outfielders, this is the one I think the three of us do have the widest variance on. And, uh, you know, it's, I think that, that reason alone maybe makes me a little bit reluctant to draft Blackman because you're right. He could be top three, top five outfielder. I just don't really know exactly where he lands so just to compare him with nelson cruz even though he's so much older than charlie blackman uh he has been consistent like a metronome for for the last three seasons so i'm going to go a little bit more with safety here for my my number one outfielder just uh so i think there's a little maybe a little bit of a philosophical difference as well that's driving those two rankings for for you and me but let's dig a little bit deeper here Christian Yelich, I am the higher one on Yelich. I've got him 16th, so in a 10 or a 12-team mixed league, he's a solid number two outfielder in my estimation. For you, you've got him 24th, so really more borderline 2-3 uh, outfielder for you. Uh, what uh, what do you see Yelich doing this year? I mean, he had a... Last year was a very good year for him, but the one thing that bothers me, I mean, he does have positive attributes as far as power goes. I mean, he had an average fly ball distance of 313 feet, 38% hard hit rate. Both of those are positives, but he had a 20% fly ball rate. I mean, only Howie Kendrick was lower as far as fly ball rates go, and a 5.6% infield fly ball rate. If you're going to put up a 23.6% home run to fly ball ratio, you better have better numbers than that. I just don't see the power being sustainable, and he's already losing a step on his speed. He had 16 stolen bases in 2015 and 9 last year, and he was caught the same amount of times each year. So the speed's already gone. I question the power, and if they dial that power back down to 15 home runs, that's not worth a number two or number three outfield pick to me. So I had to bump him down. And I don't disagree really with any of those things that you say. Uh, and I guess it's just once I do get past rostering my top outfielder, I am willing to take a little bit more risk. And what I do see with Yelich is that he's still young. We've seen some growth with him. And you're right, the 
the speed, the stolen bases, that's a part of the game that's not growing and, and appears to be receding, although I don't completely write off Yelich having a chance to steal somewhere in the you know upper teens, 15 to 18, let's say, uh, which is certainly helpful. But uh, he can hit for, for a high average. And I do think that the 20 home runs are sustainable. As a ground ball hitter, he's not that much more extreme than Eric Hosmer. And Hosmer has really now established himself as a, as a home, 20 homer type guy. Um, you know, and uh, the Marlins, I mean, there's there's some definite holes in the roster and uh, probably the biggest ones, of course, in the rotation. But that lineup's pretty solid. I think Yelich has some good run production opportunities there as well. So in terms of the range of players that I could see rostering as a number two outfielder, I like the potential for growth there. Uh, and and I don't think that the floor, I think the floor is certainly below what we saw last year. So all those risks that you mentioned, Jim, I would ag- agree with that. But I still think that his floor is not really all that low. So uh, I do like him a little bit better. Now, somebody you like better than me, Stephen Piscotty. In fact, let's let's see if we can lump these two together. Uh, a couple of Cardinals outfielders. You like Piscotty better than me. You've got him 25th. I've got him 39th. I like Grichik a whole ton better than you. I've got him 47th. You've got him 75th. Very different hitters. Uh, but Piscotti, uh, what do you see for him this year? Any growth or just uh, staying the course? A little bit of growth. I don't see any steps back from what he had last year. And this is sort of a homer pick for me because I've had him in several leagues as one of my keepers, so I'm a little biased on this one. But last year he had one bad month. He had a 209 in June, which really dragged down the average, makes him look a little bit weaker than he is. But he had a 38% hard hit rate in 2015. Last year, the number was down overall, but it was close to that in four of the six months. So it wasn't that big of a decline. It was one or two bad months overall that really declined the numbers. So he has the 20 home run power. He should get you 80 each in the runs and RBIs. And in the minors, he showed a lot better contact and better average. So I expect that 276 or whatever it was to come up to over 280 which to me, 280 average, 20 home runs, 80 in each, that's a solid number three outfielder for me. And I want that kind of stability when I'm looking for a third outfielder. I don't want to take any chances. My number three outfielder is basically someone to complement the two studs that I'm going to have above him. So I like the solid numbers overall and the potential for growth. Well, and I think this one could be very easily explained because there's one number for Piscotti that led me to downgrade him. And that is his batting average last year with runners in scoring position, 363. So I'm really skeptical, skeptical, skeptic, yeah, skeptical of the 80 plus RBI uh, promise for this year. I think he's going to have some regression there. Otherwise, uh, yeah, I, I think uh, there could be a little bit of, of an upgrade for him, but I think that probably goes a long way towards explaining the discrepancy. And then Grichik, I think this is really interesting. I mean, we're worlds apart on him. We're also similarly, similarly differentiated on Adam Duvall, and they're very similar hitters. So can I read into this and say that you just don't like all-or-nothing power hitters? Basically, yeah. I don't like him. I don't like Chris Davis, Chris Carter. I mean, any of these guys that are going to have a strikeout rate – 25%, 30% has bad contact. I'm just not going to touch any of these guys because 
you look at someone like Chris Davis. I mean, everyone loves him for his power. He hits the 40 home runs over and over in Baltimore. The one year he didn't hit the uh, 40 home runs, his batting average dropped down to 220 something. People were some people were actually dropping him. The unpredictability. I just want no part of that. I think you can find better options out there. I'd rather have a 20 home run guy that I know I'm going to get 20 home runs from with a good average than roll the dice on this guy who I may be dropping at the end of May. You very well might. And the, and the Cardinals might demote him too, which they did uh, a couple times last year. So Another reason uh, I put him down there. Yeah. Well, on that note, we've got to go to break. Uh, I hope you come back. I think you should come back. So why don't you come back? We'll be back in a couple minutes. Hello, everyone. You are listening to FanRag Fantasy Baseball. I'm Al Melchior. I'm joined today by FanRag Baseball Analyst Jim Finch. And uh, we're going to pick up on a topic that we talked about on Sunday's show with our colleague Greg Jewett, uh, where we looked at some pitchers that have extreme whiff rates, uh, those with very high ones that you might not expect. Uh, and also a, a few with very low ones. And we, that conversation kind of got cut off with Greg. And so, Jim, I want to pick it up with you. And, of course, earlier in the show, you did provide a very nice segue into this discussion by talking about Jason Vargas as kind of a sneaky play, somebody who hasn't gotten strikeouts, but at times has been a low Babbitt pitcher who's really been able to help with whip and also with good control. Uh, so, you know, Vargas would uh, definitely fit into this category of somebody who's a contact pitcher, but maybe gets undervalued because of that quality. And so Greg and I, we had started talking about Jose Quintana, and again, we, we ran out of time, so we didn't get very far. But I, I think it's an important discussion because Quintana really is drawing a pretty high profile now. And yet last year, he had one of the lowest whiff rates among pitchers, not even just qualified starters, but any starter with at least 100 innings. Uh, he had a 7.6% whiff rate. And he's not a, he's really kind of an average strikeout pitcher, which, again, that's really kind of overachieving based on the whiff rate. So uh, I'm sort of curious in terms of how you reconcile these data for Jose Quintana. Are you a fan? And if so, what do you like about him? Or if not, uh, then, you know, what role does this whiff rate play in that? Um, I like the consistency. I mean... That's basically what it comes down to him overall. He doesn't have, like you said, he doesn't have a great strikeout rate. He does strike out enough, though. I mean, it's over seven and a half, which I can be content with. The ERA is always good. He's got great control locating his pitches. His velocity's always been there. So overall, with him, I just love the consistency. He's not a great pitcher, but he's a solid pitcher. The whip doesn't match up to his ERA, but he's found a way to make that work for like six years now. So <laughs> just go with it. <laughs> so, but my take on it is that on the surface, he is very, very consistent, as you say. Uh, ERAs, every, he's never had a, a four-plus ERA. His highest was his rookie year, 3.76, and then between 3.20 and 3.51 over the last four seasons. Really Hard to argue with that. And then last year, you're taking a step forward with whip, actually pretty good at 1.16. But I do worry, I have to admit, I do worry about that low uh, low whiff rate with him. And that could be a plus when it's something 
that lowers a pitcher's perceived value. But again, because of the consistency that you mentioned, Jim, Quintana doesn't really have any problems in terms of popularity among fantasy owners. And then I look, well, how did he get the strikeouts? Well, the, the whiff rate fell pretty significantly last year. I'm, I'm now looking at his baseball reference page where they break down strikes by the type of strike, uh, called strikes, swinging strikes, foul balls. And so the percentage of his strikes that he derived from whiffs went from 15.6 in 2015 to 13.5 in 2016. But he compensated that by increasing the foul ball, foul ball percentage from 27.3 to 29.9%. And I just fear that that K rate is going gonna, is gonna to plunge a bit this year. And he also was able to kind of paper over the ERA, the potential problems with an ERA, with a strand rate, uh, and I don't have that right in front of me, but it was somewhere in the neighborhood of 80%, which is very high. So Yeah, 79%. Okay. So I gave him a little too much credit on the strand rate, but uh, those those are things that worry me about Quintana. I just I can't imagine I'm gonna I'm gonna have him in any league because I'm I'm gonna have to pay too much to take on those risks. So I don't know if that's anything that concerns you at all, but um, yeah, I, I I'm uh, I'm not on the Quintana bandwagon. Yeah, it doesn't really concern me that all that much. Until a pitcher starts to show signs of a decline, I just kind of roll with what they have until they give me reason not to, especially when it comes to someone that's shown this kind of consistency. Yeah. Well, uh be an interesting season for Quintana. Also interesting to see where he actually pitches because uh, it may not be on the south side of Chicago, to, depending on what happens this spring. Uh, let's go to somebody with a far low, lower profile. I think this is somebody who maybe falls more in that category of a potential bargain because uh, he's not necessarily a big bat misser, and that's Archie Bradley. He's, he's a strange one because he actually did strike out more than a batter per inning last year, 9.1K per nine, but um, definitely a well below average 8.2% whiff rate, whereas the, the average is right around 10%. What do you what do you make of Bradley this year? Do you think he'll even be in the Arizona rotation? Uh, I know he's not going to be part of any of my fantasy teams. I mean, he's had a few he's had a few decent uh, minor league years, but until you put an ERA below five up in the major leagues, I want no part of you. Last, uh, I know the FIP and the XFIP they were both close to four, but he walks too many batters has too many control problems. I don't care how many guys you're striking out. Unless you're Robbie Ray, I might take a chance at you if you're going to put up a little bit lower ERA, but with an ERA that high, I just, I'm just not going to touch him until he shows me something. Maybe in a keeper or dynasty league, I might be rostering him, but as far as redraft leagues, I'll let somebody else deal with the growing pains. All right. Well, that's, yeah, fair enough. The control issues are something that he hasn't really achieved uh, progress on. Let's let's take one more, somebody with just a slightly higher whiff rate last year, uh, somebody that you probably wouldn't necessarily expect to be on this list, Garrett Cole. Now, we know that last year was uh, an injury-plagued year for Cole. He had rib injury and then a triceps injury and then elbow problems later in the season. Uh, and all of that probably conspired to make him much more hittable. 8.5% whiff rate last year. Do you give any credence to that, or you just think uh, – Cole is, or is just back to uh, who he was a couple seasons ago. 
You know what? I'm going to actually put this one back to you because I'm having an issue with one of my keeper leagues with one spot left, and it's down to Jarek Cole and Kyle Hendricks. And I'm on the fence on which one to keep, so I'd like to hear an unbiased opinion on Jarek Cole myself, if you don't mind. <laughs> uh, for me, it's easy, and it's Hendricks, but that's more about me just loving Kyle Hendricks than thinking that Cole can't rebound. Um, I do think he'll rebound somewhat, but there's enough uncertainty there that uh, I'll go with Hendricks, who's just absolutely elite at uh, preventing soft contact, or rather preventing hard contact and inducing a lot of soft contact. So for what's worth, there's my two cents. (laughs) I get the same two. I get different two cents from every person I ask this question to. It's like a 50-50 split. All right. Well, maybe uh, those of you listening, you could chime in, help us out with this one. I'm voting Hendricks, but uh, I think maybe Jim needs a better uh, or a bigger sample here. So on that note, we're going to wrap this up on this uh, President's Day edition of FanRag Fantasy Baseball. Jim, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. And uh, if you could help me out, I don't have it in front of me. What is your Twitter handle? At the Jim Finch. All right. Well, that's easy. Actually, how can I not remember that? So at the Jim Finch, check him out on Twitter. Check out his work. Check out his uh, draft guide. And uh, I'm Al Melchior. And thank you very much for tuning in. We will be back on Wednesday. Hope to see you then.